And then, man, I was like, Ken, how am I going to introduce you for a sermon? Like, you always have the best intros. I don't know how to do it. And now, from okay. Over Michigan. A one. man whose oh. jokes and puns I will miss dearly, and I'll never be able to live up to doing the puns the way you do. That's all right. I'll put, them in, I'll put them in the chat anonymously when I'm watching, you know. Okay. Okay. That's good. Yeah. You'll have to have a different name. Right. Well, I'd written out a few things. I was like, man, this is the guy who's preaching. I've never grown tired of. And that's true. It's been like 25 years, Ken, and oh, yeah. from whom I continue to learn and hope to continue to have some Jack Daniels with even on your year sabbatical as we talk about anything not church. Yeah. Although you want to talk about Leviticus with me, so I will need that Jack Daniels. Yep. All right, Ken Wilson. <laughs> all right, this is already such a so much a better experience than the dream I had last week about my last sermon, in which I was uh, my text was Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel, and I couldn't find my um, sermon notes on my laptop, which actually does happen sometimes. Things disappear from my laptop, and I've never actually figured out what that is. And, how exactly to fix it. I will improve that when I'm retired and have time. But um, and then I, I went out of the I went out of the room and I was looking for my sermon and someone ran out and said, hey, come on, we're all waiting for you. And I got back in and I was one last look for my notes on my laptop, couldn't find it. It's like, I'll just wing it. And it's like, I didn't have a Bible because the text was in my notes. And it says, does anyone have a Bible? And someone hands me this Bible. It's half fallen apart and I can't even find Daniel. And thank God I woke up from that dream. So this is already so much better. Um, I'm super glad for the chance that I had um, in the previous three sermons to share the things I love about Blue Ocean. Um, I have discovered that the lame duck is a happy duck and, uh, and a grateful one. Uh, there's just something about not having the usual focus that you do as a pastor on the future of the enterprise that has opened up just a lot of uh, a lot of space for gratitude for my past and my present experience in this place. But uh, but today I want to shift gears and comment on a parable that David Gushy uh, first applied to Blue Ocean when he visited us. I think it, maybe it was in 2016, maybe 2015. Uh, Gushy was the only evangelical leader or scholar at the time to support Emily and I back in 2014, and, and he kind of paid for it. So he's a he's a dear friend of our church. But in his uh, in his visit, he likened us to the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, I think Emily taught on this in the uh, recent bird series and focused on faith community as a nesting place, weaving in the ark uh, in uh, Noah's ark. Um, I don't want to go into that, but it was totally fascinating about nests and arks. But in, in a way, this uh, parable is, I think, like, it, to me, it's like the blue ocean parable. So I'd like to offer my little interpretive um, spin on the, on the parable and what I think it conveys about the kind of church we are. So there are three versions of this parable. There's one in the Gospel of Matthew. There's another in the Gospel of Mark. And I'm I'm using the one from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. In the Sarah Rudin translation, it goes like this. Hence he said, to what is the kingdom of God comparable? And what shall I compare it? It's comparable to the seed of a mustard plant a man took the seed and tossed it into his garden, 
and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky found shelter among its branches. Now, the other parables tend to emphasize the smallness of the seed, which was really not necessary to emphasize. Everyone knew the mustard seed was had the reputation for being the smallest of the seeds. But in the ancient Near East, kingdom, uh, this is the kingdom of God parable, the kingdom of God is like parable. In that region, kingdom was virtually synonymous with empire, which meant ruled by a potentate and uh, an autocrat on steroids. So Rome was the empire of that period, uh, coming after the Greeks and the uh, and Alexander the Great, which succeeded the Persian Empire, roaring through that part of the world, ruled by ruled by Cyrus, which replaced Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar in the wake of the Assyrian Empire, and I forget his name. I don't know Shalabat or whatever. Emily would know the name of the ruler of the Assyrian Empire, and trees apparently were a common symbol of empire in the ancient Near East. Ezekiel has a vision of the Assyrian Empire as a cedar of Lebanon. I'm uh, Notice I'm wearing a Stanford shirt. This is uh, from my daughter, Amy, who works in Stanford. And the uh, the symbol, the, the insignia for Stanford is, uh, is like a sequoia tree, I think, a large tree. And then on the back of this thing, it says, fear the tree. I'm like, whoa. What is that? Fear the tree, like the trees are fearing us these days. So to compare the kingdom of God to a lowly mustard plant is an intentional contrast to the grandiose power of earthly empire. And this this does pertain to us today because we are in a resurgence of an old heresy by which the church fawns over the raw power of empire. Uh, in days of yore, of course, it was the Roman Empire, uh, the Russian Imperial Empire, uh, the British Empire, German Christianity support of the Third Reich. I mean, the greatest distortions of Christianity are tied to a fatal attraction to empire and its authoritarian rulers. Now, the war, today, the war crimes of Putin are supported by the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, here at home, Christian nationalism, what David Gushy calls authoritarian reactionary Christianity, is marked by a cult-like fetish for autocrats, like Hungary's Viktor Orban and other pals of our own homegrown demagogues. So churches like ours are popping up as a contrary witness in a sea of authoritarian reactionary Christianity enamored with a golden calf of empire. So this is our parable to what is the kingdom of God comparable and what shall I compare it? is comparable to the seed of a mustard plant. A man took the seed and tossed it in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the sky found shelter among its branches. So Jesus is sparking a movement that is anti-grandiose, anti-autocratic, anti-mob, without secret salutes, from a small seed tossed or cast into a garden, producing a bush that he calls a tree in which many birds find a nesting place, a shelter. So Luke's version alone says that the seed is tossed or cast. So the other versions use the normal Greek word for sowing a seed, which is just translated sown. That's the thing you do with seeds. But for some reason, Luke chooses a different Greek word that is translated tossed 
by Sarah Rudin or Cast by David Bentley Hart. It has a forceful con connotation, this word, like cast out. Well, why would Luke choose this word? Well, some historical background might offer a clue. Uh, stick with me, nerd moment. Uh, Luke is probably Jewish, although scholars earlier thought he was Gentile, but now the consensus seems to be that he was Jewish. And he's writing from the Jewish diaspora, meaning small Jewish enclaves who are living not in the land of Israel, but scattered throughout the non-Jewish nations of the Roman Empire. There were more Jews in diaspora at this time than lived in the land of Israel. Our translocal members are like our, our diaspora. So these Jewish communities were granted an exemption from participation in the emperor cult and offering sacrifices to the various Roman gods of the region. Uh, there was no other subgroup in the, in the Roman Empire that had this special exemption from idol worship. And these Jewish communities were surrounded by Gentiles, of course, many of whom were drawn actually to the Jewish way of life and the one God of Israel. So th these people were called God-fearers. Gentiles loosely affiliated with the diaspora synagogues, but still free to participate in the cult of the emperor and hence no threat to Rome. Uh, typically only a few converted to uh, Judaism because it required circumcision of the adult males. And that's a procedure adult males were not rushing to subject themselves to in an age before sterile technique, local anesthesia, and some of you can uncross your legs now. So Luke is also the author of the book of Acts, focused on Paul's work among the Gentiles. Paul is the Jewish apostle to those Gentiles, already loosely affiliated with the synagogues, the God-fearers, who continue to participate in the emperor cult. But based on Paul's mystical vision on the road to Damascus of, the, of a risen Jesus speaking to him, commissioning him, Paul introduces an innovation Paul believes that with the resurrection, a new age is dawning, what in Judaism is called the world to come. And as a good Pharisee, Paul knows the Hebrew prophets who said in the world to come, the nations will abandon their idols and they will worship the one God of Israel, but without converting to Judaism per se, they will be the nations so that God can be the God of all, the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentile nations. This is why Paul opposed circumcision for the Gentiles. Uh, we forget this was all happening in proximity to, maybe even in loose affiliation with the Jewish synagogues of the diaspora. So it was actually a bold experiment in what we would call multiculturalism. Recognizing difference, so it's not a melting pot where everyone is absorbed into one monoculture, but it's Jew and Gentile enjoying full equality but also the differences being recognized, but no discrimination is allowed in light of the differences, which actually is the key principle of affirming theology and practice. Recognize, accept, respect, embrace difference, but insist on full equality, which means no discrimination allowed based on the difference. So this new influx of Gentiles abandoning the emperor cult to worship Israel's God created a problem for the synagogues in the diaspora, 
which enjoyed that special exemption from nationalistic idol worship. That was a threat to Rome. Large numbers of Gentiles thinking they can abandon the emperor cult and claiming the exemption given to the synagogues. The synagogue rulers seeking to protect their Jewish community from Roman persecution would naturally want to put a stop to this, which probably meant at a certain point, um, this would be like decades after um, the events of the Gospels when Luke is actually writing. He's writing after Paul's letters by, by probably a number of decades. Uh, it probably meant during this time there were some of the uh, Paul's Jewish Gentile subgroup uh, still attached to the synagogues who were getting, who were getting uh, tossed out of the synagogues to protect the Jewish community. Totally under, understandable. Doesn't even begin to compare with the flat-out persecution that the later the Gentile-dominated church eventually visited on the, by then, much smaller and more vulnerable Jewish communities in the empire. So that whole scenario may account for Luke selecting the term tossed or cast out for his mustard seed in his version of the parable. So, you know, in a sense, we are tossed out mustard seed too. Of course, we got the heave-ho not from any synagogue rulers. To the contrary, we were embraced and welcomed by Temple Beth Emmet, our in-person host synagogue. Now, we got the heave-ho from Christians. But all's well that ends well. We were, we were cast like the mustard seed into a garden, a peaceful and a fruitful place, a place of safety. And of course, mustard plants at that time were known for their medicinal uh, qualities. Um, now we can say the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, just like a little mustard seed at first, the smallest of the seeds, but we became a tree that the birds of the sky could build their nests in, take shelter in. Still, nothing grandiose here. We're not the Blue Ocean World Outreach Center, uh, building like a, a Christian empire. We're, we're a small thing that's part of an emerging new small thing, I think. Let's turn now to the uh, quirkiest part of this parable, one that has mystified interpreters for ages. I'll read it again. To what is the kingdom of God com comparable, and what shall I compare it? It's comparable to the seed of a mustard plant. A man took the seed and tossed it into his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the sky found shelter among its branches. Well, it's a, it's a mustard plant, like you'd expect in a garden. But wait, now it's a tree when it grows. So mustard was a garden plant. It was an herb garden plant at that. At most, it was a bush, but not a tree. We, we're, we're kind of impervious to these differences because to us, mustard is in you know, aisle seven next to the mayonnaise. You know, I have to pull out my plant ID app to know what any green thing growing in the ground is, but ancient Israelites knew their plants and their classification. In fact, King Solomon was renowned for, celebrated like as the first botanist who classified hundreds of plants in his in his time matthew's version is also confused about mustard plant identification the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field matthew says not a garden where herbs belong 
but when it grows, it is larger than the garden herbs and becomes a tree. So the birds of the sky come and dwell in its branches. When Matthew inserts that, but, but when it grows, it is larger than the garden herbs and becomes a tree. He's emphasizing that like that song your parents were listening to before conceiving you goes, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Amy Jill Levine, a um, Jewish scholar of the New Testament, writes this about the parable, this part of it. Something has gone very wrong. Mustard does not grow into giant trees. Birds don't nest in mustard plants because the plants are too close to the ground and so are the animals with a taste for eggs. So this is not a normal mustard plant and it's not a normal tree. We'd say it's neither fish nor fowl. It's, it's category bending or actually category breaking. Well, when we launched in late 2014, I think it's when we had our organizational meetings, there were literally only a handful of congregations like ours, and, and we probably knew about most of them. Today, um, there are many, many more. Uh, what do I mean by congregation like, like ours? I mean, ones tossed out of evangelicalism, but which did not then affiliate with the only denominations that allowed for affirming congregations in the sector that is called mainline Protestant. So the affirming denominations in mainline Protestantism would be the United um, Churches of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Presbyterian Church USA, ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, I think it stands for, an Episcopal. When we first launched, the rector of St. Clair's, James um, Rodenheiser, a friend of mine, wanted us to explore becoming Episcopal. He's kind of lobbying us to become Episcopal. It was definitely more tempting for me than for Emily. I remember telling Emily, I'm like, Emily, they have a great retirement benefit. I mean, I, I'd be too old to get into the retirement system, but you should really think about it. Um, you know, and Emily was like, uh, <laughs> no, thanks. Uh, Emily's, ne Emily's never been like super security driven. Um, so, you know, we love our Episcopals, um, me especially since I'm married to one, <clears throat> but we are not mainline Protestants. We owe a lot to mainline Protestants. It's the only major sector of Christianity with any place for affirming theology and practice. It's the only place where different sexualities and gender identities can be recognized, accepted, respected, and embraced without any discriminatory practices. But while some mainline denominations have affirming national policies, all this is still contested at the congregational level in these denominations. You know, I think roughly half of the congregations in the first affirming denomination the UCC are actually not affirming. Ordination of women is still a contested issue at the local level in these denominations. So just as we need the mainline denominations to keep bearing witness in their global networks to help put an end to these harmful policies where they still exist around the world within these denominations, we also need places where this is no longer contested. We need like havens from all that brouhaha, especially in this time of cultural backlash. We need faith communities like, like Schitt's Creek, you know, where people are just quirky people and none of this is contested in the motel and the restaurant and the gift shop, anywhere in Schitt's Creek. It's just not an issue. 
So in a very real sense, we represent maybe like a new sector, an emerging sector on the landscape, albeit an embryonic one, not evangelical, not mainline Protestant. Something that's bending or breaking old categories like a mustard seed that becomes a tree instead of the bush that it's always been. There are advantages that the mainline denominations have that we don't, but there are things we can do that are hard to pull off as a mainline congregation. We're, we're not saddled with an old building. We're, we're, we're more nimble in responding to a changing cultural landscape. Now, we were able to respond in a pretty nimble, effective way to, uh, to pandemic. We can develop theologically. You know, I'm a theology nerd, and this is important to me. We can develop theologically in ways that mainline congregations um, can't really. Uh, the book that Emily and I wrote, Solus Jesus, A Theology of Resistance, really doesn't fit in evangelical or mainline Protestant theology. Um, I remember some years ago when Susan King showed up, um, Susan King is part of an order that includes practices that survived in the eastward expansion of Christianity. It's an ancient tradition um, uh, when Christianity went into Persia and India and China, about which little is known because a lot of it was suppressed in those places. Uh, but things like appreciation for Sophia, the divine feminine that, that actually was part of ancient Judaism, but was later suppressed. So like someone like Susan could find a theological home with us that she couldn't find elsewhere. Um, we have room for Caroline Kittle's appreciation for Midrash and Second, Second Temple Judaism. We can be enriched by the insights of black liberation theology and indigenous understandings of creator and creator's precious world. What a gift all this theological diversity can be to us. The earliest Jesus movement, like ancient Judaism itself, was a multivocal tradition, embracing a lot of theological diversity. You know, when we started, I think Emily and I knew literally just a few congregations that were like ours, tossed mustard seeds that didn't fit the existing botanical ecclesial categories. Today, we know many, many, many more. There's something happening here, even if what it is ain't exactly clear, but it's clearer than it was, and it's definitely something, not nothing. So it's my final sermon. I can, I can take some liberties. Um, gaining a foothold such as we have in, a, in what is actually seems like a new sector of Christian faith is not an easy thing. Um, pioneering is not like an easy road to hoe. Many, many people who find us are surprised that we exist when they find us, which means they weren't exactly looking for us. They stumbled upon us. They were looking for something else. But we have become a sign of real hope for people who cannot shake their God itch, but cannot get it scratched in other places either. And the mere fact that we exist matters a great deal to a lot of people in a lot of places far and wide. You know, more importantly, this sector that we are a small part of matters a great deal to many more people than are actually participants in it. Um, Emily and I have been in touch on a, on a regular basis since we launched in 2015 with people who want to know, is there a church like yours where we are? 
Um, Rebecca Farlow, who does a podcast with uh, Justin Lee, reached out to me not that long ago to say, can you send me a list of churches like yours? I want to interview some of them on the podcast. We hear from tender and noble souls who cannot find a safe for them faith community. And they say, I just want you to know, I take so much hope from the fact that you even exist. I didn't know such a thing was possible. Well, we didn't either until you all came along since the end of 2014. Caroline Kittle is our newcomers pastor working with uh, Diane Sanda and, and, and they're now getting a regular stream of stories from people who find us and say, I didn't know such a thing existed. I'm so glad you're here. Plus, we, we know a whole slew of people who are still recovering from their religious trauma and can't yet be part of any faith community until they can learn to trust themselves again, not to be hoodwinked. So the fact that we exist is a little ray of hope that they can one day reconcile their hunger for a divine connection, their affection for Jesus, and their longing for a faith community. It's really important that churches like ours exist on the faith community landscape. It's really important, I think, for a just society to have faith communities leaning into justice, informed by the Hebrew prophets, inspired by Jesus of Nazareth, who was scapegoated, crucified, and risen as a witness to the hope of the triumph of justice on the earth. Like, where do you get an ultimate hope for something like that happening? You have to go beyond just what we can see and analyze. We need the power of spirit along with well-marshaled facts and persuasive discourse and science and advocacy because the pursuit of justice is at its core a spiritual quest and we need all hands on deck right now. So um, it's my last active pastor. I'd like to raise some money for Blue Ocean. Um, if you want to bless me upon retirement after my long tour of duty as a pastor, then bless this church that I love. Um, if you're already doing a monthly donation and you want to bump it up for the next year as we emerge from COVID into a newer normal when churches are rebuilding, including ours, what a blessing if you can do that. Oh, or uh, start a monthly donation if you haven't. Whatever you want it to be, if, if, if you're in a position to do that. Or, or send Blue Ocean a one-time gift, whatever floats your boat. Uh, and by the way, thank you in advance for the cards and well wishes and videos, your presence here today. And uh, hi to my sister, Marilyn, tuning in from New York City. And uh, I think I saw Judy and Grace here too, and making this such an honoring and lovely send off. I feel loved. Oh, Emily, that means I'm done. Oh, my bad. That means you're done. <laughs> Wasn't going to protest. I mean, if you wanted to go on and on, I need to work. I need to work on my closings. You know. What you? Okay. <laughs> Next year, when you get back, we'll 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 do that. I remember when we were planning this. You you had mentioned that maybe a little like. Um, did you want to do a little back and forth? Sure. Yeah. That. I mean, yeah. your thoughts. I mean, this is like a key a key parable that you've taught on and have mentioned in terms of gushy and what are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think this and the wineskin ones were kind of core to our understanding of who we are. And as you were preaching, I was like, Ken, you're like 
stealing my sermon for next week, but it wasn't the mustard seed. I'm doing something for first Peter, but it's a very similar uh-huh. understanding of sort of some of the diaspora people of like being sort of home, finding themselves without homes. Yeah. Right. Um, and this being that gathering place and yeah, I mean, I, I think you summed up where we're at, not evangelical, not mainline. I've always had a little bit of a hesitation just because being queer and going through what I did and what you did and what our congregation did. I don't really want to re-enter a system where it's um, contested. That doesn't sound fun to me. Why would I do that? Yeah. You remember back then when I was saying, hey, Emily, you think we should think about the UCC (laughs) retirement (laughs) plan. I mean, you know. I I grew up Pentecostal. I mean, I just... I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm actually pretty like cautious money wise and stuff. But when it comes to like, I don't make decisions like for a faith community or for my own faith based on those sorts of um, considerations. Usually yes, it's more like, what's the spirit doing? Right. And it's not always clear, but we found friends with TFAM. That was something that we can talk about. I'll talk about a little next week. It's like you yeah. said, it's like other people doing the same thing or starting to find each other. Yeah. And some of it's happening in the main line and some of it's happening outside, but it's, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Like, I, I guess I don't have any anticipation that this is going to be like some big growing movement in the short term. I think it's more of like attending a little, yep. tending a light and like bearing witness to this as we pass it along through whatever is coming. Yeah. And we're going to see a continued, I think, shrinkage of uh, mm-hmm. institutions. And yeah. some of that is like necessary and helpful actually yeah. for the cause of justice and and the good realm of God coming into the world. Sad to say, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't. You know, there've been lots of d- different attempts to like organize. Let's create a network and all that. And so some of those things are happening, but I I think it's. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's going to be like that so much. I, um, but there's a yeah, remarkable my, yeah. similarity in the pastors who have gone this way theologically. Like mm-hmm. all of them are reading. Black theologians, queer huh. theologians, women—they yeah. all kind of realize, oh my, I've been, I've been overdosing on you know white male yeah. theology for all yeah. these years, and I need to fix that. So I do think if anybody has the ability to do it, I do think TFAM who are joining, I think they are starting to realize that like, oh, if we open this up even a little further, th- there might be a sort of um, parachurch sort of umbrella. Yeah. yeah to take us in this, in this space. I think it's been interesting too, like as we get contacted by a lot of different pastors, like a lot of the mainline pastors I talk to when they read Solus Jesus, you know, maybe it's not every little thing they agree with, but they're like, this is generally where things are at or where we see things going. It's just that we all have these different containers and we're not quite sure what that means. Yep. Um, well, I'm looking forward to your first Peter sermon next Sunday. Let's <laughs> Well, I mean, I've got the nub of it, but man, there's a lot of like emotion going into to preaching sort of a retirement thing. But yeah, well, we love you, Ken. Glad it's you, not me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. well, all I mean, I want it to also have a good joyful feel because this should be a celebration and not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Amy and Grace are going to be there. So and yeah, Oceana's tuning in from Scotland. So, you know. Plus, it's, it's our congregation, and we love everyone. Like, 
I sent this in the email on Friday, but Ken and I got together on his front porch last week and it was just like, we're just like, God, we just love this congregation and this community. And so I hope it's even just a celebration of that. What we've created together, all of us is really, really beautiful and special. I think not yep. perfect, but special. Yeah. 